This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 1, as well as from Luke chapter 1. We read portions of inspired history in Matthew 1 and Luke 1. First, Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Matthew 1, 18 through 25, where we find the record of Gabriel's words to Joseph regarding the Incarnation. And then we turn to Luke 1, where we find the angel's words to Mary regarding the same incarnation. First Matthew 1, 18. Hear the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, She was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary, thy wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. We turn also to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1, beginning at verse 26. We read from verse 26 through 38. Luke 1, 26 through 38. And in the sixth month, in the six months after Elizabeth had conceived, John the Baptist in the womb, in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. 
And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God... Nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. We read that far in God's holy and inspired word. We turn now to the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 14. Lord's Day 14, where we find the Catechism's explanation and instruction regarding the Incarnation, which we confess in the Apostles' Creed. Lord's Day 14, what is the meaning of these words? He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, that God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, took upon Him the very nature of man. Of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost, that He might also be the true seed of David, like unto His brethren in all things, sin accepted. What profit dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity? That he is our mediator. And with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sins, wherein I was conceived and brought forth. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the history that we read in Matthew 1 and Luke 1, and that which we consider this morning is not only history that we are to remember and celebrate on December 25th and that season of the year. This history, this gospel, 
is good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people in all time. It is a miracle to ponder today also as Mary pondered these things in her heart. It is a gospel which we ought to be glorifying and praising God along with the shepherds and the angels in heaven. Again and again throughout the year. It is that gospel for which we should, as those wise men, be bowing down before Jesus Himself, the King of the Jews, God who has been and continues to be God united with our humanity. Beloved, marvel. Marvel again with me at what is called the incarnation. The infleshing. That's what incarnation means, children. The infleshing of God. Marvel with me at the miracle of it. Two miracles, really. Two parts of one miracle, more accurately. First, a virgin conceived. She who was espoused to Joseph, the sworn bride of Joseph, who had not yet known him or any other man sexually, the virgin conceived a child as though the mystery of child conception and birth was not enough. Every child conception and birth is amazing. God did something that had never been done before and never will be done again without man, without insemination of the natural or artificial kind of today. God caused the virgin to conceive and give birth to a son. What an awesome miracle. We need to be astounded by that again. And then this aspect of the miracle, another amazing miracle wrought in that conception within the Virgin, that is of God. Perfectly, powerfully, closely and intimately united with man within the womb of this Virgin. The joining of divine person with human nature Oh, great, Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3. God condescended to the lowest parts of the earth, as Psalm 139 puts it. He condescended to the lowest parts of the earth and fearfully and wonderfully joined Himself to man, not only to make a child, but to become a child in that womb. Oh, what glorious unification of divine and human. That's a miracle. The miracle of the incarnation. Is there anything so awesome, so glorious, so exciting as this? This miracle of the incarnation was called a sign that we delve into today as well, along with those miracles. A sign. Isaiah 7.14, The Lord Himself shall give you a sign, Isaiah said to King Ahaz and to the people of that day. 
this sign that is, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It's called a sign, not only because it's a miracle, as we already said, but a sign is a revelation of God. A sign is a picture that which shows you a truth, two truths especially which we get into today, two gospel truths first. Salvation is without man. Without the help of man. That's what the virgin conception is proclaiming. That's how it's a sign. Jesus was conceived without Joseph in the virgin womb. Without man. Did you hear that, children? Don't forget that. When you think of the incarnation, it was without man. And so also it is true regarding every other aspect of salvation which Jesus Christ has performed for us. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not of man. The second meaning of this sign of the incarnation, that which is very deep, deep within the womb, deep but simple, salvation consists of God united to man. In other words, salvation is covenant. Covenant is salvation. Salvation is the union, the unity of God with man. That's what this sign of the incarnation displays to us and shows to us the union of divine nature and human nature is to proclaim Christ has come to unite God and man. What a gospel. Believe as you confess in the Apostles' Creed. Believe in Him who is conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. You remember that the Apostles' Creed and the Catechism is going through the names of the Savior that we must believe. Names which reveal this Savior, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God and our Lord. And I said last week when we considered our Lord that we came to the last of the names in the Apostles' Creed. And that's true. But though a name is not explicitly mentioned in the Apostles' Creed and in our Heidelberg Catechism, the name that especially pertains to the Incarnation and the name which Jesus most often used in His public ministry to refer to Himself is the name Son of Man. Son of Man. He, the Son of God, through the Incarnation became the Son of Man. Took on our humanity to unite us to God. All true believers believe this name, this doctrine. 1 John 4, 2 and 3. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. 
And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come of the flesh, in the flesh, is not of God, but is that spirit of Antichrist. Believe in Jesus. Come in the flesh. Consider with me this doctrine as taught in the Heidelberg Catechism under the theme, the incarnation or the infleshing of God the Son. First, the meaning. Second, the necessity. And third, the prophet. The meaning, the necessity, and then the prophet. Delve with me into those two miracles I already mentioned as part of the miracle of the Incarnation. First, be sure with your whole heart that Mary indeed was a virgin when she conceived and brought forth Christ. No, she was no perpetual virgin, as the Roman Catholics claim. Perpetual children means permanently a virgin. In idolizing Mary, the Roman Catholic Church exalts Mary above Scripture and above that which Mary would want. She would despise and oppose the reform or the Roman Catholic teaching herself. Roman Catholic teaching officially th- teaches that Mary was a virgin her whole life perpetually. But Matthew 1 ends in verse 25, immediately proving, immediately showing she was not. Joseph knew her not, we read, till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And the word until indicates that Joseph knew her after she brought forth her firstborn son. And the word firstborn reveals that Jesus was her first son. And there were others afterward conceived and born naturally, as we call it. She was no perpetual virgin, but she was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, to emphasize this point, repeats it, repeats this truth again and again in the Scripture that we read. Matthew 1.18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as His mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together she was found with child. Verse 22 of Matthew 1, quoting the prophecy from Isaiah 7, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. And then verse 25, And Joseph knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. That was what the angel told Joseph. And then the Holy Spirit repeats that in Luke chapter 1, verse 27. To a virgin espouse to a man, a virgin, there was this child conceived. Verse 34 of Luke 1, How shall this be, Mary asked, understanding what the angel was saying. How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? The Spirit repeats it again and again and again and again. All this and still many today claim that the word virgin means merely young woman. But the Holy Spirit who performed the very conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary, insists Himself through inspired Scripture. This was indeed a miracle, 
of conception in a virgin. And in emphasizing that, the Spirit is not saying that it was due to Mary's greatness and purity or superiority over other women that there was conception in her womb of this Son of God. Or rather, it was due to Himself, the Spirit working in her, being gracious toward her and all of God's people. To Joseph in Matthew 1.20, that which is conceived in her is not of because of Mary, but of the Holy Ghost. To Mary in Luke 1.35, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. The Holy Spirit worked. But the Holy Spirit worked upon Mary's body. I dare say, upon the reproductive system of Mary, so that when the Holy Spirit worked conception in Mary's body, that which was conceived in Mary was of Mary, as the Catechism puts it, of Mary's flesh and blood. That's an important point, children. The Holy Spirit did not form a human being outside of Mary's womb and then place the baby inside of Mary's womb as though Mary's womb was merely a container to hold that which was formed outside of Mary's womb. Neither did the Holy Spirit make in Mary a baby that was unrelated to her. But that which was conceived in Mary was of Mary, of her genes, of her chromosome, of her egg, so that what he formed in Mary's womb was an undeveloped child, a real related descendant of Mary, and therefore, as the Catechism also puts it, of David, great-great-great-great-grandfather of Mary. This is denied by many today. The Belgian Confession, Article 18, addresses this. Therefore, we confess in opposition, the Belgian Confession says, in opposition to the heresy of the Anabaptists who deny that Christ assumed human flesh of His mother, that Christ has become a partaker of the flesh and blood of the children, that He is of the fruit of the loins of David after the flesh. And when the Belgian Confession mentions these Anabaptists, it refers to people of today who are known as the Mennonites or the Amish. They view the material world as sinful of itself. It's one of the reasons that they don't use the technology of today. But more, they also view Flesh and blood is sinful of itself. It's part of this earthly, material world. So that they claim that the child could not have taken on 
marries flesh and blood because that itself would make him sinful. To them, the virgin's womb was just a container to store Jesus, who was unrelated to Mary by flesh and blood. But that's not confessional and that's not biblical. Galatians 4 verse 4, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman and made under the law, a real human being. So that, though we are not supposed to make an image of Jesus, we must know that when Jesus was born, He looked like Mary. He resembled Mary. He had facial features, hair color, skin tone, a build even, human characteristics which were not only Jewish, but had resemblance to Mary and probably also His father, David. She was his real mother, a real human conceived of the flesh and blood of Mary, with a central human nature, theologians put it, meaning down the center of the covenant line, not of any other line, but in the very middle of the covenant line. Remember, children, you just learned this in catechism of the seed of the woman, Eve, of Noah, of Shem, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Judah, of David, down that very central line through Mary came Jesus of the flesh and blood of Mary. That is the miracle a virgin conception. And it includes the miracle of the unification of two natures. The Catechism puts it that He, God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, took upon Him the very nature of man. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, joined Himself to be a man. The Father and the Spirit were involved in the Incarnation, intimately involved. The Father sent the Son. The Spirit empowered the Son. But the Son personally joined Himself, and only the Son joined himself to the human nature. Here is a mystery I cannot fathom. Indeed, great is the mystery. While God did not cease to be eternal, as the Catechism said, omnipotent, almighty, all-knowing, infinite, while remaining such, He took on the finiteness, the weakness of humanity. 
within the womb. The creator while remaining creator became creature. The eternal while remaining eternal had a beginning. The infinite, everywhere present God became bound in space, contained in the darkness of a womb. The all-knowing God took on an undeveloped, finite human brain. The Almighty became an unnoticed speck in Mary. The immortal took on mortality. The Lord, the Master, became servant. The Son of God became Mary's babe. The transcendent condescended to accomplish this miraculous union. So powerful was this union that it was permanent. If you thought of that, children, children, a common misunderstanding that catechism students often have when they come to catechism class, and I ask you a question about this, a common misunderstanding that ought not be a misunderstanding is that the joining of God and man was a temporary thing so that for 30 years in the life of Jesus, God become a man, but then after He rose from the dead, He, he wasn't a man anymore, was lesser of a man. Not so. What happened in the womb of the virgin was so powerful, so miraculous, that it was permanent. Well, what is man? That God would do this for him. God the Son would never again be separate from our human nature. He bound Himself so close to humanity in the virgin's womb. Everlastingly, He would be both God and man. Unbreakably, He would be one with us. So that even after He ascended, he remains, He forever will be God and man. Another way to marvel at this miraculous union of human and divine is not only of thinking of the permanency of this union, but marvel at what happened even in Jesus' death. Death. Death could not separate this union of human and divine. When Jesus said on the cross, children, go back to the cross. Father, into Thy hands I commend My Spirit. And He gave up the ghost. That is, His soul was separated from His body and His soul went to heaven and His, and his body went to the tomb, to the grave for three days. Even then, the separating power of death could not separate the human and divine that had been united in the virgin's womb. And the body that lay 
in the grave for three days. His humanity, even then, mystery as, as mysterious as it was, that body was still united. God the Son. Read the Belgian Confession, Article 19, this afternoon. You hear its beautiful explanation of this truth. That was the miraculous bond that formed, an unbreakable bond between human and divine. A bond in which the Creed of Chalcedon says there was no confusion or mixture, no change so that human changed the divine or divine changed his humanity, but a perfect unity so that there was not any division or separation. That's the miracle of the Incarnation. Very briefly, a few more aspects about the truth of the humanity that He bound Himself to. We already said it was a real humanity of the flesh and blood of Mary, central in the central covenant line. But it was a complete human nature as well that He was joined to. Another misunderstanding, catechism children, that is often in our minds is that Jesus had a human body, but His soul was divine. It's not true. Jesus had both a human body and a human soul. And I know that's hard to understand because we are only human bodies and souls. How could Jesus be more? But He was. He was the second person of the Trinity joined to a human body and to a human soul. Because His soul, remember, had to be human in order to suffer for us. His soul had to be human in order to endure the worst part of suffering on the cross. The wrath of God poured to His soul. Matthew 26.38 shows Jesus with a suffering human soul when He said to His disciples, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. It's a human soul. He took on both human body and soul, a complete human nature. He took on also a weakened human nature. Like unto His brethren in all things, the Catechism says. Touched, Hebrews 4, 15, with all the feelings of our infirmities. He had to grow with growing pains. He didn't have in His humanity wisdom just like that, but He had to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He felt hunger. He felt thirst. He felt extreme fatigue as he worked himself to minister to the people. He endured physical pain, the pangs of death, 
He suffered emotionally, psychologically from abuse, and betrayal. He felt the temptations from Satan, body and soul, from church leaders of his day, from his very own disciples. He had weakened human nature. He suffered the effects of the fall. All the effects of the fall. Sin accepted. And so we say, and must say, He took on in the Incarnation miraculously a sinless human nature. No original sin. An original sin includes a legal status of being guilty before God in Adam. Original sin includes a corruption that was passed down from father to son through the generations. Jesus did not have original sin in both those regards. His legal status was not guilty before God of Himself. He took on no guilt in Adam because of the person that He was, the person of the eternal Son. He escaped the corruption for the Holy Spirit. Luke one thirty five conceived in him a holy or in Mary a holy thing, a holy one. Like a filter, the spirit ensured that the human nature was a human nature, a real human nature that was passed from Mary to Jesus, but not her sinful nature. Sinless. Marvel at that, children and beloved people of God. Sinless. Not a word, not a deed, not a thought, not an imagination of the heart, not a bit of blackness, darkness in his human soul to taint his perfect works all aimed at the glory of God perfectly. What a Savior incarnate. Why was this necessary? The virgin conception and this powerful union in conception was necessary. First, consider the necessity of the virgin conception some ask about that, and in our human minds we might ask that. Why couldn't it have been? Could it have been? That Jesus was conceived a normal way without virgin conception? Still be our Savior, the Messiah? Well, the first reason that it was necessary that the virgin conception was necessary was that it was a fulfillment of prophecy. God, the God who cannot lie, said this must be and so it had to be. He said that the Messiah 
had to come from a virgin. He said that such would be the sign that the Messiah had arrived. He spoke it, and thus it had to be true, and it was done. If Jesus had come not from a virgin, then that would have proven that He was not a Messiah. He was another fraud. There were many frauds of the day. And or it would have proven that God was a liar. Neither was the case. He came as through the virgin as God had prophesied. The angel Gabriel was clear to Joseph in Matthew 1, 21 and 22. Why did God send Jesus through a virgin? All this was done that it might be fulfilled. Why was it necessary? That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. God promised it. 700, more than 700 years before, He promised it. And His promises had to be and were, yea and amen, in Jesus Christ. The second reason it was necessary that Jesus be conceived in the womb of a virgin is this, so that the person of Jesus person of Jesus would be God the Son. The angel explained that to Mary in Luke one thirty-five that we read. In Luke one thirty-five, we find the word therefore. Therefore explains the necessity of virgin conception and birth. Therefore, or on account of this literally, because of this virgin conception, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Because of the whole virgin conception, and only because there was a virgin conception, He could be the person of the Son of God. If He had come any other way, He could not have been the person of the Son of God. That's deep. It's mysterious. It's hard for our human minds to understand, but here's an explanation that can help us a little bit. Think, think of what would have happened if the Messiah had been conceived by Joseph and Mary together. If man had been involved in the conception of Jesus, the result would have been a conception of a new person. That's what normal conception produces. A new person that is a new human person. And then Messiah would have been a human person rather than what He needed to be. The divine person, God the Son, only by way of virgin conception could there have been this astounding miracle of Jesus being the person of God clothed upon with our human nature. Virgin conception was necessary because it fulfilled, it had to fulfill prophecy. 
so that the person of Jesus could be the Son. Third, virgin conception was necessary so that, as I said in the introduction briefly, the sign that salvation is without the works of men could be proclaimed immediately when Messiah came. Not by man. Salvation is not by man. That's what incarnation had to proclaim. Immediately, God sent Christ through a virgin to proclaim that gospel. Without man, not by man, was the Savior conceived. And there's something to that that especially applies to you men, that is males, you and me, to all of us, but especially to men. You who think you are strong. Man cannot conceive of a Savior in his own mind, much less in the womb of a woman. Man will just mess things up. So God sent the Savior. Without you, men, without me, so that in doing so, He could save weak, sinful men like you and me. With man, with man, salvation is impossible. with God. All things shall be possible. This incarnation is necessary to proclaim the sign that salvation is without the work of man. But finally, it's necessary also to signify the wondrous truth of the covenant, of what salvation consists of, the unbreakable bond of covenant, God with man. For in that virgin conception, deep within the womb of Mary, you see, recorded on the pages or explained on the pages of God's Word, Emmanuel, God was joined to man. Permanently, we said, permanently, so that forever God is with man and the man Jesus Christ right now in heaven. And so, per so powerfully as he was He joined that even death could not separate God and man. 
the same uniting power, beloved, that united the human and divine together in the womb of the virgin is the uniting power, is the bond of friendship that unites us to God. Unbreakable. As strong as the tie which binds and still binds divine nature to human within Christ. So strong is the tie that binds Christ to us and God to His people. Indeed, He is Emmanuel. God with us, with us, with us, far closer, far greater more powerful than you can even imagine. Without confusion and mixture, but also without division and separation, ever. But you are bound to Him by faith. The incarnation was a sign of that salvation, but of course it was not just a sign. Incarnation was a sign for our saving benefit or profit. What profit does thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity? He's our mediator. I don't have time to explain all the truths connected to that. That's every aspect of salvation that Jesus performed and still continues to perform right now. What the catechism means by, his miracul- by, by this is that His miraculous conception equipped Jesus, qualified Jesus to be the mediator in every respect. The go-between, that's what mediator means. Being incarnated in this miraculous way He remained God the Son, able to sustain in Himself the infinite wrath of God for us. Incarnated in this miraculous way, He took on a complete human body and soul, equipped then to represent us, to suffer in our place, body and soul. And not only to suffer in our place, body and soul, but don't forget this, to obey in our place, to be perfect in our place, body and soul. Or we can put it this way, from womb to tomb, from womb to tomb, from conception to death. Complete perfection. And that's not only to be attributed to Jesus. That's what God declares about us. 
for his sake. Catechism makes special application here to the his sinless conception and birth. Read it that way. His sinless conception and birth covers in the sight of God my sins wherein I was conceived and brought forth. His sinless conception and birth covers my sinful conception and birth. Already then, when I and you were conceived and born in sin in our mother's womb, as Psalm 51 puts it, God saw us as without any sin because Jesus was without any sin from the womb and to the tomb. Parents, you may connect that to Lord's Day, this Lord's Day to Canons, Head 1, Article 17. Godly parents have no reason to doubt the election and salvation of their children whom it pleaseth God to call out of this life in their infancy. That's how far Christ's righteousness covers. Unto the womb. Unto the womb. Sinless he was at his conception. So sinless God judges us and our covenant children. Even if they are lost. In a miscarriage. Or they die in infancy. Bound they are. To Jesus. As closely as his divine and human natures are bound. That's what we mean. By covenant. Children. His mediator continues to pour forth all sorts of saving benefits upon us. As our mediator, he establishes peace between God and us. He causes there to flow from heaven above to us his spirit to give us faith, assurance, sanctification, preservation, glorification, every blessing. The virgin birth declares, without the help of man, not dependent on man, God is with us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.